Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 202 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Emily Baker. She's a medical SLP who has been practicing in acute care and inpatient rehab settings for 12 years. She completed her undergraduate degree at Baylor University and earned her master's degree in communication disorders at the University of Texas at Dallas. Emily currently works as the primary treating SLP in a level one trauma center. Her areas of special interest are dysphagia, fees, and video fluoroscopy, instruction, and mentorship, as well as the treatment and management of patients in the cardiovascular populations. Emily lives in Houston, Texas with her husband and her three children. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my name is Emily Baker. I'm a speech pathologist at Memorial Hermann in Houston, Texas. Um, I've been practicing for about 12 years. I received my Bachelor of Arts from Baylor University and Master's of Communication Disorders in at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, I've been practicing in acute care for the last five years. Prior to my job in acute care, I worked in inpatient rehab for about four and a half, specializing in brain injury, spinal cord injury, and specialty rehab. And then before that, I was up in Dallas working in acute care facility as well. Um, I spend the majority of my time working with the cardiopulmonary population, um, but very much enjoy supervision and mentorship in the areas of fees and MBS as well. 
I'm the co-author and presenter of Fees, Basic Knowledge, Practice, and Documentation, which is um, an introductory fees course for our hospital system. Um, I live in Houston, Texas with my husband and our three children. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Emily. So what do you you want to chat about today? I think we're going to talk about cardiopulmonary population, which I'm very excited to talk about because I think it's one of those areas that a lot of us didn't really even exist and know that we worked in until we started working. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't remember hearing anything about this in graduate school. Nope, nothing. Nothing. And I, I had a wonderful externship in acute care. And even then I was in neuro, but it wasn't until then that I even learned that there was a cardio rotation. And it's kind of interesting, and I'm not sure what your experience is, but it was always kind of this sort of like the wild, wild west of speech therapy and acute care. It's like the place where people are either hesitant to go or maybe that rotation where everyone's like, no, please send me to trauma or no, please send me to neuro. Just, I'm not sure I want to go to cardio. And so the first time I got rotated to cardio, I was like, oh man, what did I do to deserve this? (laughs) You know, I want to go to trauma. I don't want to go to cardio. And it took almost no time at all. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Awesome. These, these patients are complex. Um, They're so interesting and they're so outside a lot of the norm that we see as speech therapists and speech pathologists. And, you know, you open up a patient's chart and it's like, okay, I need to Google that. Okay. I need to Google that. Okay, I need to go back to what are all of these things. And to me, I love that challenge, especially being a bit into my career where I feel like I've had a lot of exposure to neuro. And so to still be able to show up every day and be challenged and have these light bulbs go off is really, really fun. And so, you know, kind of you know, my intro words are if you're feeling hesitant about the cardiopulmonary population and you're unsure you know, go for it because it's really, really a neat opportunity. There is a lot of opportunity for program development, for reestablishing or just establishing best practice. Um, A lot of room for research and publication of those are goals as well. So this is a neat population. And I think it's really unique too, because a lot of these patients are cognitively intact. And so one of the things that I missed when I switched from rehab was creating those relationships with my patients. You know, a lot of our neuro service line, you know, they're sort of here for four days, five days, and then they're off to rehab. Your cardiopulmonary patients are critically ill. They have these multifactorial illnesses and they're with us for quite some time. And I believe as speech pathologists, we're very relational. And so to be able to be in an area where you get to kind of cheerlead these people on and you get to watch their progress and you get to see them post-surgery at their worst over a period of time, I think is really unique in acute care. 
And that's one of the things that I really love about it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. Cause I think, you know, sort of the underlying theme with a lot of the episodes that I've done recently is just so many SLPs sort of feel not, not SLPs, but just healthcare professionals in general, just feel like such at a crossroads with their career, just because of COVID, just the emotional, you know, weight that that's gone and, and all that. And I, and I think people are looking for sort of just this new and invigorating Mm -hmm. project basically. And, And I love that you talked about really just how, how the, really the sky's the limit and that there's such a need for program development and things like that in this area, because I think there's so many SLPs that really want to get more involved with some more of the medically complex patients and get more involved in acute care and just don't know the one hair, one, one hair, oh my gosh, when, where, what, how, why. <laughs> Any more coffee this morning? Okay. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks, Emily. So where, where should we start? Yeah. Where should we okay. start? I thought maybe what we could do is go through maybe some of the diagnoses that we're going to see. So sort of break down those heart hospitals and what you're going to see and which ones might kind of raise some red or yellow flags when you're, when you're going through those chart reviews. And then also talk about real fast before that, the primary contributing risk factors that we know of to be true across the board, but that specifically lie within this cardiopulmonary population. So the big one is age, right? I mean, we know that the cardiopulmonary population is generally of advanced age elderly population. I would say... I often think, oh man, you know, what's going on here if I see someone that's like 55? You know, we're used to seeing, you know, these 60s, these 70s, even 80s and early 90s in here. So we already know that age is a predictor of dysphagia. So even coming in this population, we know that there's an issue there. We know that prolonged intubation and multiple intubations is a risk factor for dysphagia. These are patients, again, with long ventilation times. These are patients with multiple surgical procedures requiring intubations and extubations. And so that is already an issue. Weakness and deconditioning, because they are, you know, again, especially like on our heart failure units, you're looking at patients that have been battling COPD, coronary artery disease, CHF for years and years. So they're not coming into us, into our hospital. We're not seeing them as like, say, maybe you would see an 18-year-old in trauma who was perfectly healthy and active and then has this focal injury. You know, these patients are already battling these chronic illnesses when they come to us and they reach the point of needing these ICUs and these interventions. And so um, I think that's a consideration as well. And then something that's really interesting that I don't really think we think about all that often is that by the time most people reach 65 and older, they're Morbidity and mortality with these events is already higher, again, because they have the comorbidities. You know, by that time, we've developed insulin-dependent diabetes, which we know is a risk factor. Um, We've developed, maybe they've already battled a cancer or something like that. And so it makes it more difficult for these these bodies to recover. Um, And they get so weak and they're so deconditioned and really require this multidisciplinary eye um, to put these pieces together. So, and then again, history of CBA, a lot of patients do, especially with AFib, especially patients with these heart rhythm issues can throw large strokes. They can throw a series of small strokes, things like that too. So we know that that's a risk factor as well. So specifically in our heart and vascular hospitals, our heart and vascular institutes, 
typically we're going to see like a heart failure unit. We're going to see a cardiovascular unit. Um, and then we'll see maybe like a critical care unit. And so on our heart failure units, that's where we're going to see things like coronary artery disease, where we're going to see our STEMIs, which is our ST segment um, elevation, myocardial infarction, which is the most severe form. And then where we're going to see our NSTEMIs, um, so the non-ST segment elevated myocardial infarction, we're going to see issues with the mitral valve um, and a lot of left ventricular dysfunction. The interventions, particularly for these patients, a lot of the times are where we start to see the red flags pop up for dysphagia. So there's a really neat study, and I actually, and I love this article because to me, for someone who loves the cardiopulmonary population, this was, this is kind of a foundational article where we start to see the issues of dysphagia in this population. And so it is um, from Harrington at at all. um, It's silent aspiration after coronary artery bypass grafting. It's kind of this um, neat article that was published in the late nineties, but I think is one of the first ones that I've seen that really says, Oh, we've got a, we've got a problem here. Um, And they're showing too, that the use of the intra aortic balloon pump, which is very common in heart failure, is a very significantly increased the risk for silent aspiration. And this is something that's not just used in our ICUs, but it's used intraoperatively as well. And they were showing that increased pump times during these surgeries was a a big risk, not only for dysphagia, but a risk factor for silent aspiration. Interesting. So that's something to really be aware of when you're doing your chart reviews. And so would certainly encourage, you know, all of our therapists out there, don't just look at the HMP or the CLIN notes, go into the op note, because there's a lot of factors, which we'll touch on in a little bit later, that that just happen intraoperatively that are going to increase your risk for dysphagia and for silent aspiration. And, and I think, I think to your point, Emily, I think what a lot of SLPs, you know, since we aren't trained on a lot of this information, it's easy to may just say, oh, well, why do they have dysphagia after the surgery? This isn't something that would cause a dysphagia. Maybe it's just post-extubation dysphagia or something if they were intubated during surgery. And I think, you know, that's sort of where our elementary brain goes without knowing that, no, these actual surgical procedures can have an impact on it as well. Yes, yes. And if you are, you know, a curious therapist, if you are a curious person, this is the place to be because there's every reason under the sun for these people to have dysphagia. Super interesting. Yeah. It could be anything, anything. And so to follow that trail, you can almost get lost in thinking what and why. And it's good to be prepared to answer those questions because, you know, I can promise you a, a, a cardiothoracic surgeon is not real high on the thought that he's damaged the recurrent laryngeal right, nerve. Right, right. You know, never, and never. I would never, <laughs> <laughs> under any circumstances, would I ever stand face to face with one and say, well, I think you've damaged the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Like, don't, if you take anything away from this podcast and you are trying and you're trying to develop a program, do not tell a cardiothoracic yeah, yeah. surgeon that he's cut it. He already knows that it's an issue um, and he doesn't want to hear it from you. So don't do that. Um, But yeah, so 
So interesting, these interventions. And so the other thing, so as the heart failure becomes more advanced, we start to look into advanced therapies. And these are things, of course, that require medical review board. These aren't just interventions. The balloon pump, um, the impella, which is also a, a catheter that goes in either through the subclavian or through the femoral artery is going to be, is, it exists for heart failure as well. Also left ventricular dysfunction. It stays in the left ventricle as opposed to the intra-aortic balloon pump, which goes into the aorta, but it, they generally target the same dysfunction. They're both intended to be very temporary. The impella um, is around about seven days or so is the average amount of time, but I've certainly seen it in for longer. Um, considerations for the balloon pump, since that one is placed through the femoral artery, I do not go into any ICU bed in our heart hospital without talking to the nurse first, A, number one, and two, even if I don't see a machine in there, are there any head of bed precautions? Because these patients can have so many lines and so many leads, and it can be really intimidating when you walk in and you see all of these things. And then that can also be, you know, we will get swallow evaluation orders for patients with balloon pumps. And so we're thinking, okay, our only option is reverse Trendelenburg. We can maybe give them about 10 degrees and reverse Trendelenburg. That's going to affect their ability to eat and drink as well. So that's a big consideration. And then, so make sure that there are no head of bed precautions before we go in, do those evals and sit these patients up. So that's a big thing too, that I would be really cautious about. Um, the advanced therapies over on heart failure, you're going to see the LVAD, which if you're a Grey's Anatomy fan, you know, Izzy cut the LVAD wire. I think that's where we all probably heard about LVADs first. Um, and then that is that left ventricular assistive device. So that functions again for left ventricular dysfunction. But for these patients, um, there's two options. So this is more permanent. And the reason why we have issue with this too, is because this requires an open heart procedure. So anytime we have an open heart procedure or placement of anything, immediately the risk of that dysphagia is going to increase because we do know the proximity of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So vocal dysfunction, um, laryngeal injury are all things that we see with LVADs as well. It's not that common. I wouldn't say that there were a really high percentage of the population um, that I'm used to seeing, but it definitely is something to be aware of. And the other thing, too, is that the presence of all of these interventions is an indication. It's indicative of a patient who's really struggling. So sometimes we tend to think, oh, well, how come the placement of this or why the presence of this? Are we having dysphagia? Just the very presence alone of these interventions tells you you have a critically ill individual here. And so the LVAD can be used for in two different ways. There's something called so LVAD destination, which means you know you're unlikely to be a candidate for heart transplant, but we want you have you know the support, you're going to follow up and we can give you more years. And it's implanted, these patients do then get to leave the hospital with it. And so um, that provides freedom for those patients as well. And then there's LVAD bridge and LVAD bridge means we're going to bridge you to a transplant. Our intention is to bridge you to an orthotopic heart transplant. And so those are our advanced therapies. So whenever you see, you know, is this patient a candidate for advanced therapies? We're talking about LVADs and we're talking about heart transplants as well. The other thing that, that we typically see on our heart failure units are our 
lung transplants, single and double, and then anyone requiring ECMO, which I think we've all become much more familiar with during this COVID time. And so a lot of those patients, you can have ECMO, VV ECMO, which is venovenous ECMO, which just helps the lungs only and has either one to two cannulas, or there's VA ECMO, which is, tar- which is veno-arterial ECMO, which is the lungs and the heart and its two cannulas. Um, we did do a retrospective look data collection when we were programmed developing over in our institute, and it showed that we were getting about 80% of all ECMO patients that had survived. So, um, which totally this, makes this sense definitely... and sounds totally logical. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes, 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 for sure. I know. I was like, I remember when we were going through all the high-risk diagnoses and I was like, man, I really hope that the percentage yeah. that we saw yeah. is yeah. high because we know that they need us um, and we know that they're at such a high risk. Um, so that's kind of a general run-through of our heart failure units. And then your cardiovascular units. So this is where we tend to see the majority of elective procedures here. So these people may be a little bit more healthy than what we see in our heart failure ICUs and whatnot. And so here's where you're going to see a lot of our cabbages. We are going to see our abdominal aortic aneurysms with dissection, with rupture and those repairs. We're going to see ASD and VSD closures, and then the thoraco abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is essentially an aneurysm that's starting not only in the aortic arch and that descending portion of the aortic arch, but then actually down into the abdominal aorta. So that's pretty big. That's a pretty big deal. Those um, are the treatment for those. There's two options. There's an open procedure, which is extremely extensive, extremely complex, um, which is going to put our patients at a very high risk of dysphagia, again, because anything in and around the aortic arch is going to be a problem. In the way, if we think about it back to our anatomy, that recurrent laryngeal nerve or that vagus nerve comes down, it will wrap itself around the aorta Part of it, it will bifurcate. It's going to continue to descend down the body, but then the other bifurcation portion will swing up around and back up the aorta. So it's literally wrapping itself around the aorta. And then that's going to bifurcate and you're going to have your esophageal portion and then you're going to continue up and have that left recurrent laryngeal nerve as well. And so if you think about that, any time we're repairing any sort of aneurysm or any sort of dissection in the aorta, it's that recurrent laryngeal nerve is right there swinging down and right back up again. And it's, you know, and it's, it's interesting because you may hear, oh, well, I wasn't anywhere near the recurrent laryngeal nerve. I didn't, I didn't, I know that I didn't touch it. And it's like, okay, well, and that's fine. And again, like I said, I would never argue <laughs> that point, but, but we as speech therapists know you know, the recurrent laryngeal nerve speaks for itself and it tends to do so in kind of a breathy vocal quality. And so, and, and that's okay. Like that happens. And, um, but anything in around that area is, is, has the potential to cause you a problem because the recurrent laryngeal nerve, it's not like it um, is neon green, you know, with a tag saying like, don't touch me, don't touch me. It's, it's in there. It's, you know, it's, it's the same color as everything else. Um and so definitely, you know, with these, you know, 
a lot, a, a little bit of grace goes a long way when discussing this. The other thing too is to, it's really important not to just think or just assume that because we have vocal fold paresis or because we have unilateral paralysis or maybe we have a bilateral issue that quote unquote, the nerve was severed or the nerve was cut. The recurrent laryngeal nerve is a very dramatic nerve. It does not like to be touched. It does not like to be exposed to air. It does not like for you to say, hey, can you scoot over a little bit? Sounds like my geriatric beagle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so sometimes it's just hypothermic therapy has been linked to cold stunning the recurrent laryngeal, you know, that the vagus nerve or recurrent nerve. And, and hypothermic therapy is used in cardiac procedures all the time to slow down that rate during those, um, during those interventions. And so that's important too, to kind of say, let's not jump to the worst case scenario here. It could just be that this was exposed to air. It needed to be pushed over. It's a little bit irritated and let's give it some time to calm down and let's watch and just go ahead and move through with our interventions our interventions. So some other things that we see. So my current interest lies very much with our ascending and descending aortic arch aneurysms and these repairs. And one of the reasons is because I've, I've looked it up multiple times and I, and I can't find really an article on this. And so again, like we were saying earlier, there's so much to be done and so much to be learned here in this area. And this is an area that I'm really interested in. And so these patients typically, you know, again, if we think about our anatomy and the proximity of the nerve, and then of course that esophageal branch, these patients tend to present with more esophageal dysphagia. And these are patients who may come in and say, we may see them post-surgery. We've seen a couple pre-surgical, which I would love to see more pre-surgical, especially the ones that are elective, not emergent. But what they do is they'll, t- as these patients will tell us, it just feels stuck. It feels like I'm swallowing and I'm swallowing and I'm swallowing and it won't go down. It won't go anywhere. And every once in a while, we sort of catch on this, we sort of caught up on this trend and these patients will say, but you know, this was a problem before. I had this issue before and now it's just worse or now I'm noticing more of the same. And so, you know, the hypothesis here is, well, do we have these large aneurysms sort of either placing extrinsic pressure on the esophagus itself or onto that branch of the nerve? And do we have this sort of buildup over time of, this just slow onset of dysphagia and difficulty. And the thing is, I don't know the answer to that question, but I would love to know the answer to that question. And these are the things that are really fun is you, when you really dive into this area and you see these patients, instead of just picking up one here, picking up one there, going to the heart hospital at the end of the day, you know, really you start to see these things that really get your mind going. And that's just a hypothesis. I don't, you know, we don't know if that's what's going on, but I would love to find out. Yeah. That's super fascinating. I'm like, I'm I'm in the middle of doing sort of like this workshop about evidence-based practice. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, clinical experience and people are just like, well, how do I get the clinical experience? You know, how do I, I can't just gain 20 years of experience overnight. And I think, you know, one of the, I guess, quote unquote, like cheat codes is to really just 
dive into a specific Mm -hmm. area in just Mm -hmm. complete Mm -hmm. depth, you know, and and you may not have a study for every single thing that you're seeing, but by seeing these patients over and over and learning and learning and learning, you will sort of put the pieces together and make these different hypotheses about these presentations that you're seeing. And I think, you know, that's something that SLPs just think that other SLPs just have all this experience and know all this. And, and it's not, I think so many of us have just learned by really diving in and just making our own hypotheses about what we've seen. Right. In this, in this model of rotation that we have now, I, I am no longer rotating, but you know, previously we were. And so it, it limited our ability to establish these programs because by the time you felt comfortable, by the time you knew where everybody was or who everybody was or how to get a hold of this physician or how to get a hold of this team, it was time to rotate again. And so, you know, if the model of your particular facility does allow for more time spent in this, in a certain area, that's a great thing for our program development. And then also speaking to the issues of pre-existing conditions, I think we know that CT surgeons are happy to learn that something existed prior to yeah. their surgical procedure. Yeah. So yeah. that's another way to maybe get in the good graces and say, hey, you know what? I actually think there's a possibility that something was going on before. This might not, you know, and, and then that's, uh, they're like, oh, I, the, the last time I did have, have that discussion, one of our physicians was like, I mean, his eyes lit up and I was like, great, this is a good, this is a good convo. This is exactly what we need. This is exactly what we need right now. Um, okay. Couple of others, a lot of aortic stenosis. That's where we see our, um, aortic valve replacements, which is an open procedure. Another one we need to be careful about aortic and, um, open procedure and then our TAVRs. And so the TAVRs are the other thing that's really, really interesting to me because this particular procedure is, does raise a red flag so much so that it's in our nursing dysphagia screen. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, well, why, why does the TAVR send off these alarm bells? Because this is a trans catheter aortic valve replacement. This is a cath procedure. This is not an open procedure. So why are we having such an issue with this patient population? And so I came across, again, another really great article, and it's called, it's the incidence of dysphagia among patients undergoing TAVR with either general anesthesia or moderate sedation, and it's um, Leif Mukdad um, et al., and what was very interesting is if, so the TAVR population, the aortic stenosis population is usually not just our elderly, but like our advanced elderly. And we're talking, we see these patients that are lucky enough to make it to the eight, to their eighties, to their early nineties. And what this study showed was that based off of whether or not the patients were, this procedure was completed with moderate sedation versus general anesthesia that changed their risk of dysphagia, that the patients that underwent general anesthesia had a higher incidence of dysphagia than those with moderate sedation. And so, again, that raises that question of why. And so the thought process, we know that cognition affects dysphagia and our risk for dysphagia. So if you have a patient that, say, in their late 80s and early 90s, it's not crazy to think that there's probably some sort of either age-related microvascular ischemic changes, potentially 
an onset of dementia and even things like Alzheimer's. Well, when we take these patients and we put them under general anesthesia for an extended period of time or for a period of time, a lot of them wake up and have a very difficult time metabolizing this this anesthesia. And so we do see um, some cognitive decline sometimes in our elderly population after general anesthesia. And so to me, that was really, really interesting. And that was one of the things that we presented to our surgeons. Um, and it was neat to see because we would either see in notes or hear in discussions as the advanced practitioners who are really the eyes on the floor and pull all of the pieces together. They're absolutely incredible. Um, and And they will be your biggest ally in your heart hospitals, they would say, oh, okay, well, let's, we need to probably try moderate sedation for him. You know, let's try this instead, you know, just because simply because they had heard it. And, and to them, it was extremely interesting as well. Um, and they wanted us to take a closer look. So we haven't had a chance to, because this, I think there were a lot of things that so many of us had in the works and then COVID hit. And so we're having to kind of get through this hump to sort of get on to some of these other things. And this is something that I would love to take another look at, but I found that to be fascinating. I really appreciate that article too as well. And then our, our critical care units are typically those patients that have a cardiac history, but maybe have more of like a medical, like a, an acute medical issue, maybe an exacerbation of a CHF, maybe an exacerbation of a COPD. Maybe it's an old transplant patient and they're just having, you know, maybe they'd have an ammonia or something like that. So it's more of a, a broad, less script unit that we see, but, mo- but a lot of um, heart hospitals will have something similar to that as well. Awesome. All right. How'd you get so smart, Emily? I think that's what everyone's going to want to know. Oh, no, I just, that, <laughs> honestly, I, I just, I think I, when you find something you're passionate about, you just yep. dig and you dig and yep. you dig. And yep. you dig. Yeah. And and it becomes it becomes fun when you discover things. And I just I I look at these patients and I want to have an answer because you get asked so many times why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. And you want to say, you know what? There's a bunch of different reasons. Here are a few of them and you know, have that confidence, you know, our, our services are so valuable over there and they're so needed. And it's our job to show them that because these are surgeons that are very experienced and have been practicing for decades. And they'll tell you, this was never a problem before. Are we creating an issue here? No, I had, a, I, I had, no. Um, and I had one come up to me one time and say, I don't know why he's having trouble swallowing. I didn't cut his neck open. And I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. We believe you. We believe you. <laughs> we, we believe. I do believe you. I do believe you because I know that this patient had a cabbage, and I know that you didn't cut his neck open. I understand that. That is um, that I, I am familiar with. You know, at least the basics of these procedures. It perhaps could be the prolonged intubation. It could perhaps be the cabbage. It could perhaps be the thirty minutes of cardiac arrest. It could be any of these things. But nonetheless, I uh, did my best to handle that 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 question with grace. And um, he, in this particular one, he did he did attend our um, our little educational discussion at their at their meeting a few weeks later. Um, and he and and he's been and he's been actually very kind ever since. I really appreciate it. Good, yeah. But well, thank. I mean, thank you for saying that because I think there's just 
something that I, I always want to tell SLPs is to just do the work. I mean, dive in and, and learn about these areas that interest you. Like you said, you know, you didn't come out of grad school knowing all of this and I think people just are like, Oh, well, they're lucky. They learned all this in school and no, <laughs> yeah, not, oh, not no, me no, either. None of it. No, no. I mean, surprise yourself, go and yeah, surprise yourself yeah, and see truth. what you can do. Yeah. It is. And again, you know, we love to be relational with our patients, but you know, be relational with this with your your coworkers, with your advanced practitioners, your nurses are are the eyes in the room. Your advanced practitioners are the eyes on the floor, you know. And if you have their buy-in, your orders are going to come from the from the advanced practitioners. They're not going to come from the surgeon. They put all of their trust in their advanced practitioners, um, and rightfully so. They're extremely skilled, and and if you can get in with them. And you can get that buy-in. You're going to get the consults that you need. And then you're going to get to be able to show and you're going to get to prove that our services are necessary and valuable as we see them progress. And as we see a reduction in the rate of aspiration pneumonia, as we see a reduction in the rate of, you know, complications and secondary complications that we, that we know can be avoided. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. I just love this. You bet. I love getting to talk about it. It's fun. It's, it's, it's really, really fun for me. And, um, and there's, it's, you know, yeah, like you said, it's just been kind of a, a neat little later, you know, as you get into your career, just something to just spark that fire again and that interest and to be able to, and to have something to be able to teach, to be able to show people again, something that you may not have learned in graduate school, but Hey, how, how cool is this? How neat is this? It's a, it's a neat opportunity to be able to do that, to be able to teach, to be able to mentor, to supervise, I think is a responsibility that those of us, as we go on throughout our career, we should really take on because many of us have had wonderful supervisors, wonderful mentors. And so to have that, and then to be able to pass that along to me is, is awesome. That's, it's a great, it's an honor. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that there are a couple of just really extra special challenges and extra um, just special considerations maybe to think about in this population more so than just our general risk factors. Um, I think the first one is to understand the multifactorial nature of these patients and understand that the heart affects the lungs, the lungs affect the heart, the heart affects the kidneys, the kidneys affect the heart. And so as we see heart failure and we understand that with reduced perfusion, we also see an increase in fluid buildup and and edema. And that extra buildup of fluid becomes very difficult for the kidneys to process. And so what we end up with is a lot of patients you will see on either dialysis or continuous dialysis. And that really wears our patients up. It's a very exhausting thing for them to go through. So considering, again, that level of weakness, deconditioning, fatigue, when we're having essentially what is a multi-organ, I don't want to say failure, but in the absence of these interventions would essentially be a failure. I think, too, that what we see a lot is a lot of appetite. So we get so excited, our patients and their families or nursing staff or physicians get so excited when the patient can finally pass for a diet. And then all of a sudden, 
it's a week later and we're still getting reports of very poor PO intake. And no one's like, why is that? And they may throw it around. Oh, well, they may just be, oh, I just think that they're depressed and, and they have every right to be. And that may be very, then that may be true. And it may be a factor, but understanding physiologically what's going on, we, we know that when a patient is in heart failure, the blood focuses on the most vital organs. So the heart, the brain, the lungs. So the less vital organs or the organs that the body seems to be less important, such as the gut, tend to get a lot less of that blood supply than what they're used to. And so we know that this can also cause some changes in the microbiome of the gut, but it can also, again, lead to that fluid buildup. So these patients have a lot of feelings of bloating and just fullness and not having the ability to actually get that appetite back. And so understanding why our patients may be able to swallow, but not ready to eat, you know, are two very different things. And just, um, you know, doing them the service of understanding why they may be struggling with that. And so I think we're all pretty familiar with, and we've touched on high flow nasal cannula as well. It's very common in the heart population. Unlike some other areas of the hospital that you may see, even sometimes with COVID patients, you know, we've we've been able to pass them on these very high oxygen percentages and, and high liters per minute. But in the heart hospital, it's an indication of respiratory failure and shutdown or a very recent prolonged intubation. And so I would be extremely cautious with um, our high flow nasal cannula patients in the heart and vascular hospital. This is a little bit different than what we see, but I know we've touched, you've you've touched on that a lot in the podcast. So I'm not going to go into detail on that, but that's just a consideration as well. A couple of things that I would encourage everybody to also note is that with our longer ICU stays, we have a higher risk of ICU delirium. And these are patients that are here for a very long time. And so don't be surprised, of course, when you do see some of that cognitive decline in these patients or a turn, because um, these are patients that are here for a very long time. We're talking about lengths of stay in and around, you know, 24 days as opposed to four to five days. You know, these are not patients that are rushing out the door to get to inpatient rehab. They're just not able to. And so taking that into consideration as well. What to look for in your op notes, I would say use of intra-aortic balloon pump, perioperative or post-operative CVA, the use of a single lumen ET tube versus a double lumen ET tube. Tense, our, one of, one of, our, um, one of my coworkers was telling me that that was some sort of anecdotal information that they had just perceived, they had seen. And so I would say, hey, that's something at least to be aware of. Again, I don't think that we can, it's written in stone, but something to consider as well. Your intraoperative TEEs. This is really important. There was, again, a really great study and it showed that risk of dysphagia after transesophageal echocardiography during cardiac operations by Rousseau et al. showed that patients that had undergone intraoperative TEE were 7.8 times more likely to develop dysphagia postoperatively. And that's a pretty significant number. I mean, that's a really significant statistic. So 
that was really interesting. So look for that as well. And then, of course, any resuscitation efforts or use of ECMO intraoperatively. And then, again, for some of our other procedures, that general anesthesia versus moderate sedation as well. Awesome. So lots of research opportunities. I would love to see more of this in our medical SLP courses in graduate school. I would also encourage everyone to take a really good look at their nursing dysphagia screens. Um, you know, if their facilities have them, a lot of times they're very geared towards our neuro patients. Um, and a lot of times they're not geared towards our cardio patients. And so if you can get together with your team to maybe look at and create something more specific for your cardiac units that cap that better captures their needs and better captures their risks and their risk factors. I think that that could be a, a really big step in making sure that we are in fact seeing the patients that need to be seen as well. But yeah, and then some more SLP-led yes. research studies, yeah. you know, some prospective studies, most the majority of them we'll notice are all retrospective studies. So some prospective studies led by our SLPs. Um, awesome. Also, I would, would, would love to see. So, Thank you, know. Emily. This was fantastic. Absolutely. I hope uh-huh. you just created a whole slew of cardio love and SLPs. So. I hope so too. I hope so too. Yes. Bring it on. We need yeah, you. Awesome. You might be inundated with emails after this episode airs, but um, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Let's yeah, do this, it. This was just so helpful and thank you for making it so easily, easy to understand. I think, you know, just thinking of this anatomy and physiology can be so intimidating, but um, thank you for presenting it the way that you did and, you know, helping us understand the relationship, which seems to be a, uh, very strong one. <laughs> yeah. so. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Any any final thoughts for the people? Yeah, I would just um, really, really to the point that I've said before is that your heart and vascular institutes are very fertile ground for program development, for process improvement, for reestablishment, for establishment of best practice and evidence-based practice. Um, There's opportunities for research. There's opportunities for publication. So much potential for education lies within these institutions, Um, not just for SLPs, but for physicians, for nurses, for advanced practitioners. You know, I would encourage you to just to go to observe to study, to learn, to research, to publish, to establish a program, to provide education, to go and look at the last six months and see who, who, what, what patient population is your facility seeing and how often are we getting consulted? Are we making improvements in these areas? One of the big questions is the speech holding of discharge. Should we not be doing this? Ooh. And we, ooh, I know we all every, but that's just that's the one. That's the one trigger that speech services. The speech, they're, they're you're all holding the discharge. So we tackled that question head on, which is really what triggered the six month retrospective data collection that we did at our facility, and it showed that in fact. Our patients were being discharged on an average of, I believe it was nine, 9.2 days after being passed for a dischargeable diet. Um, so 
So we got to answer that question with a resounding no. Yeah. We are, in fact, not holding up discharge. Um, we were able to show average improvements of our DOS scores. We were able to say, hey, a lot of these patients actually had a known risk of dysphagia. Yeah. They have a previous, they have a previously reported history of dysphagia. Hey, they've had a history of stroke. These patients were trained. There's all these different things. And so get an idea of the real characteristics and personalities of your unit um, and see where that takes you because from that I promise you will come your opportunities for research and program development and it won't just be from you you're going to get buy-in from your pulmonary critical care team you're going to get buy-in from your CT surgeons you're going to get buy-in from heart failure because they're going to see the numbers these are numbers people these are numbers people these are science driven and if you show them the numbers and I was told by our uh, Kind of, our, kind of our physician representative, if you show them the numbers, they will believe you. Just show them the numbers. So that's my, that's my, uh, my point is show them the numbers. Do it. All right. I love it. That love it. So yeah, you know, we need you out there. We need you in these hospitals and we can't wait to find out what you discover. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. This was so wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.